listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. On March 8th, IER's President Tom Pyle testified in front of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce's Subcommittee on Energy at a hearing titled, Charging Forward, Securing American Manufacturing in Our EV Future. Here are his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Upton, and all the members for holding this hearing on the important questions of American manufacturing and electric vehicles. I'm a strong supporter of energy freedom. I support the right of the American people to choose the types of vehicles and fuels that work for them, including electric vehicles. Consequently, I'm opposed, as are most Americans, to the idea that government should mandate energy technologies or fuels. In its recent rule on tailpipe emissions, EPA instituted a de facto electric vehicle mandate. They estimate to meet that standard, about 17% of vehicles sold by model year 2026 will have to be electric. They also concluded that the rule add an average of $1,000 to the cost of each car. That's an average. Purchasers of crossovers, SUVs, and trucks will almost certainly pay more, as they will need to subsidize purchases of smaller, less popular cars. With respect to chargers for electric vehicles, it seems unfair to ask taxpayers to pay for them when investors have already provided EV makers with hundreds of billions in capital. Well, beyond questions about consumer choice and cost, it is clear that EVs will increase our dependence on the communist regime in China. China dominates the global advanced battery supply chain. Even materials and components manufactured domestically are often sourced from or transit China. Not just the mining or mineral production, China also dominates critical mineral processing. The United States could, of course, mine and process many of those materials, but the current administration is unlikely to rush to approve new mines, certainly not anywhere near the number needed to reduce our dependence on communist China. I don't believe that Americans are in favor of trading our energy independence for dependence on a genocidal regime identified as such by both the current and previous administrations. I'd like to close with three thoughts. First, the high prices in Europe are a result of an over-reliance on wind power, which underperformed this summer and winter, along with decades of underinvestment in oil and natural gas. Consequently, Russian natural gas has become more critical to European energy security. It is no surprise that European governments, and until today, the American government, has yet to impose strong sanctions against Russian-sourced energy and Russian energy companies. All of this, like the current push for EVs, was driven by government policy, not market forces. It turns out that the existential threat related to energy is being overly dependent on another nation for a commodity that is essential for electricity, heating, and even food production. Second, in the wake of the 2020 election, President Biden made it clear that he intended to be an enthusiastic advocate against domestic natural gas and oil production. The cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline, the de facto lease suspension, the weaponization of financial regulators, the proposed tax increases on natural gas, market distorting tax credits for unreliables, the recent FERC policy statements and many more are part of an effort to purposefully create an environment in which it is difficult to invest in domestic natural gas and oil. Third, the reputation, the repetition of the rhetoric about the utility of alternative sources of energy 
the possibility of net green, zero greenhouse gas emissions and the inevitability of the energy transition have led directly to higher energy prices for Americans. Those involved in finding and producing the fuels that currently power the world are rightly concerned that our government might be serious about creating an electricity system entirely dependent on wind and solar power or outlining gasoline, diesel-powered cars and trucks. How can anyone blame them when that's what they hear from their leadership, both in Congress and in the White House? Consequently, these businesses have underinvested in natural gas and oil over the last several years. In 2014, the world spent about $490 billion finding and producing oil and natural gas. In 2021, that number was less than half of that. Despite high prices, growing demand, and shrinking supplies, energy companies are disinclined to rush to produce more oil. Why? Because they're listening. And they're concluding that such investments and such actions, which in most cases require years to pay off, are simply too risky in the current political and social environment. Therefore, it should come to no surprise to anyone that the cost of gasoline, natural gas, and food are all soaring. Support for electric vehicles isn't going to make this problem go away. Thank you. Joining me now to discuss the hearing is IER's President Tom Pyle. Tom, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Alex. And before we get into it, I'd like to say thank you for all the great work you do with this podcast. It's uh, one of the uh, highlights of my week when I when I hear your interviews and stuff. You've got great guests, and uh, I, I only hope I can do some of them a little bit of justice today. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's the first time I think you've been on the IER podcast. It is. <laughs> Ironically. What's it like to be on your own, your own uh, organization's podcast? It's great. Yeah. Uh, we should do it more often. Yeah, we Although uh, I think your audience would much prefer the guests that you've been able to, to, to corral. So. so let's recap the hearing. Um, I was there. I thought your opening remarks, which our listeners have already heard, uh, did a good job of setting the tone for the hearing. I think the members... We're receptive to the message. Uh, do you want to just recap uh, your overall thoughts of how things went? Yeah, and then... you know, I when I was asked to testify, uh, the subject of the of the hearing was manufacturing and and what is it going to take to secure our EV future? And I, I got to tell you, I just <laughs> I told the the Republicans, I said, I think we have to go beyond that. Uh, this isn't this isn't the with everything going on, it, it's just, it just drives me crazy with all this crazy, like, you know, political posturing about stuff. And I understand it's part of the business, obviously, but there are times when you've got to rise above it. And this is certainly one of those times. I mean, I've been in this town for 30 plus years and I've seen a lot. Um, I have never seen the, the types of, um, the policies that this administration is pushing out compounding on the global situation, you know, granted we were in a pandemic and I understand that, you know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of sh uh, crazy decisions that were made that had really impactful uh, decision, you know, impacts on the economy and everything else. But now, I mean, we got to get out of this. And so uh, it was, it was a good opportunity for me to go beyond the scope of the hearing and talk about the big picture because you can't have EVs. You can't have EVs without all the stuff that we're talking about that they want to get rid of. Right. I mean, we've made it absolutely clear both in the testimony and in the Q and a, and 
and I was struck, Alex, I don't know if you were, but did it not occur to all the witnesses, including uh, the gentleman who represented Ford Motor Company, and all the Democrats who are, are pushing this EV stuff, that at no point did they not recognize that the entire crux of the conversation was how much the federal government can do. How many partnerships do we need? What are the states doing? And, and the whole conversation back and forth amongst the Democrats, because they they were either unwilling or, or too fearful to, to ask me questions, I guess. It never occurred to them that the, the, the way that they were talking, it was that the government was literally setting industrial policy. And how far have we gone as a nation if that is just commonplace conversation? I'm sorry, I'm rattle, no, that, rattling that, on. So. That's what we, t- we talked about in the Uber on the way back was uh, essentially that, that the whole, uh, basically the, the whole crux of the conversation was all about federal government micromanaging the whole of energy and car policy, basically. And, um, you know, at, at no point was there any self-reflection of, you know, maybe the problems that are happening in Europe right now are because of exactly what we're talking about doing <laughs> right now in this hearing. It, it, it was just, yeah, I mean, no... look, we're 10 years away. If we continue down this path, we are 10 years away from, from Europe. Now, the circumstances will be different, obviously. But the crux of the matter is still the same. For the past 15 years or so, Europe has been, you know, feeling comfortable that there would be no invasions, I guess, um, from other nations, feeling comfortable or secure or whatever, that they could somehow transform their energy system without causing pain. Um, now they have, they have locked themselves into dependence on Russia for their energy in particular natural gas, as I mentioned, I think the number is 40%. Western Europe uh, gets 40% of their their natural gas from one country who clearly has designs of imperialism or, or whatever else is going on in Vladimir Putin's head. And they have no intention of cutting off that energy. And I don't blame them because their people will die or freeze if they do. And so they are, in essence, paying Vladimir Putin to continue his war in Ukraine because of their energy policies. Now, they announced that they're going to make some changes. I think that's great. I applaud them. Um, but let's see, because what they're talking about now is a few LNG terminals and some heat pumps. Right. Uh, let's see how let's see if they're very serious about it. How likely do you think it is that this I I would call it basically a worldwide energy crisis at this point um, leads to an actual rethink of energy policies, just writ large, not just for Europe, but here in the U S and um, I guess, you know, circling back to the hearing um, you know, do you think this was sort of an inflection point, at least for Republicans to recognize how important energy policy is and, and get involved in these issues I, a little bit more? Y- yes, absolutely. Um, I think that the Republicans, as in general, we're kind of floundering around on these issues, you know, kind of feeling like they had to be part of the conversation about the climate change conversation. Um, this has woken them up. The key is, is they're, they're acting very like emotionally right now. Um, they really need to like take a deep breath and, and kind of focus on what needs to be said and what needs to be done and, cr- and create a case for the American people. Why, 
they should be given power in November and say, this is what we're going to do if you elect us, right? And put together a very comprehensive sort of energy American energy, you know, security plan where it says, okay, we're not going to, you know, play around anymore here. We're going to actually do stuff. And quite honestly, the, the administration and the Democrats are doubling down right now. They're basically saying, you know, this just proves what we've said all along, that we have to accelerate this madness, right? They have to put their foot on the gas, pardon the pun, put their foot on the electric battery um, and, and continue forward. And it's disingenuous and it's, it, it, it assumes that we're just, you know, either naive or not smart. Uh, this this uh, this hashtag Putin's price price hike business, the notion that they're wagging their fingers at the industry for sitting on leases. The, you know Elizabeth Warren is basically back. You know uh, you know calling for windfall profits taxes and things like that. They're doubling down because right now I think that they sense that it's now or never. I sense that the American people are are are, are starting to say, you know what. I think the environment is important. We all do, but this is radical. This is radical, and I'm feeling it now. See, the high energy prices for this these policies are a feature; they're not a bug. And the problem that the administration has, and the the green left has, is that now that it's quote unquote working, they're they're trying to figure out a way to lower the price, but still put the squeeze on the domestic producers, and that's what they're trying to do now. They have not changed. If you noticed, they have not done one thing different. They're talking differently, but they're not saying or not I'm sorry, and they're not doing anything differently, right? They're doubling down. You have the NEC director Brian Deese saying we got to get off of these things. They haven't changed yet. I'm, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I, I think that um, it's going to be not too far in the not too far distant future where they're going to have no choice but to start relaxing and, and getting back to uh, some some semblance of reality with energy policy. What are two or three things they could do right now that would make a difference? Well, there are there are a multitude I mean, of things. Um, you know, everyone talks about the Keystone Pipeline and, you know, the, the Keystone Pipeline. Let's go back to the history there just really quickly. I don't want to dwell on Keystone. Everyone knows the deal. The State Department, the Obama State Department said, this is fine. They signed off on it. The Green Left, the environmentalists, they got involved in this and turned it into a political deal. And President Biden, President Biden, <laughs> President Obama sat on it for seven years. If, if he had permitted it and just moved on, that pipeline would have been uh, 800,000 barrels a day would be flowing from Canada into our into our Gulf refineries. That didn't happen. So will if he reverses on that, of course we won't get oil tomorrow, but it'll send a market signal. Now, there are a whole host of, of things that the president did uh, that made it very clear that he did not want us to be producing our oil here. A lot of it has to do with the absolute freeze out on federal lands that can stop tomorrow. He, there are so many things he could do without congressional approval to send a signal to our producers. Okay, we're going to ease up here. We're going to we're going to have you part of this process. Keystone Pipeline, uh, the permits on federal lands, uh, extending or expanding the areas made available for lease. 
going back and saying, okay, we're going to reconsider our decision about Anwar, which was congressionally mandated, by the way, right? So they get Alaska back in the game. There was a, a, a Babylon B had a, a funny little deal. It said Biden's going to sell Alaska back to Russia so that they can start producing more oil. Um, there are um, FERC. Uh, which is the agency that, that manages, uh, approves permitting for federal uh, for natural gas pipelines, has basically come up with rulings that would make it impossible if they were to implement them to, to build a new pipeline. Obviously, that has to stop, too. So there's so much that they could do, but they're not. They're blaming Putin. They're trying to change the subject. They want us all to, to, to drive Teslas. One of the talking points that you heard from uh, the Dems in the hearing that I know you wanted a chance to get uh, to push back at, but you didn't quite get asked about was the uh, the matter of uh, oil companies sitting on permits. Uh, leases. Or leases. I'm yes. sorry, yes. On leases. Yeah. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, real brief. You know, the way it works is, is the administration, the Interior Department offers up areas of federal lands for lease. And... Companies bid on the leases and they, they give money to the federal government for the privilege of get, seeking a permit to drill on those in those areas, right? Well, yeah, it is true that there are probably about 9,000-ish leases out there outstanding. It is not – it's not actually higher than it's, – it's not, you know, unusually higher than the average, right? That's the first thing. Secondly – the industry is currently at about a 76% lease utilization rate. That's a pretty, that's actually pretty high. So they're already in areas where they already were. One other thing, and the reason that the number might be slightly higher is, is that, and this was, some of these executives called me and asked me what my opinion was about this, whether they should go out and, and bid on the, the last round of the Trump leases in order, out of fear that the Biden administration wouldn't offer any more leases. And guess what? He hasn't. So they did secure those for the opportunity going forward to maybe lease. There are also, you know, the way the business works, not all leases will be developed. You know, in the old days, they called them dry holes, right? But here's the kicker. And this is why I wanted to answer that question. Yeah, the oil industry is, is holding 9,000 leases, but there are over 4,000 permits sitting on Joe Biden's desk waiting to be approved. So... I say to the administration, why are you sitting on 4,000 permits? I think that covers most of what I wanted to talk about in the hearing. Was there anything that uh, we didn't discuss that you think is important for us? Well, this, real quick, the subject of the hearing was EVs, electric okay. vehicles. And uh, let, I want to chat just for a couple of minutes about this, because in spite of all the happy talk at the hearing about EVs, and there was a great deal of discussion about supply chain, right? Where are we getting these minerals and everything else? And I think that was covered pretty thoroughly if our listeners, uh, you know, are so inclined to check out the hearing or maybe include my written testimony as well. Yeah, but I want to focus on this point, And this is what is always seems to be missing in these conversations. The average cost of a new vehicle today is $47,000, okay? The average used car today is $30,000. To put this in perspective, the average individual income in the United States is about $63,000. Okay. The, even the executives of auto companies have said on record that electric vehicles are much more expensive to produce and 
the policies that this administration is putting forward is actually because they have to subsidize these electric vehicles is actually putting upward pressure on that average price because the cars that you and I are buying right now, they have to make a profit somehow. So they're making that more expensive. So you have high gas prices as a result of government policies and you have high automobile prices as a result of government policies. How is this helping people? How is this helping the middle class? How is this helping people on low income uh, ladders, seniors, folks on fixed incomes? This is real pain, real pain. And, and that, part, that, con that part of the conversation is usually left out of these, you know, lofty discussions about the future, right? right? So remember, and this is why we do what we do here. Those are the people who matter. That's, that's why we fight so hard for free markets and free and, 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 all, and the rule of law and all the fundamental principles that made this country a, the, ama the absolutely most amazing place ever. So... My guest today has been Tom Pyle. Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. Take it easy. A full video of the hearing can be found on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org.